podcast i don't know you know i didn't know a whole lot about it um going into it it was just kind of you know i hear people say oh yeah this is when feudalism ended and when capitalism and the state sort of arose so i'm like okay that's going to be interesting to learn you're always like wow this must be the longest war in history (laughs) 30 years yeah, they, they said the 30 years, and then they're at the conclusion of the 30 years, thus also ended the 80 years war between two other <laughs> countries. Um, but the the deaths in combat was 450,000, mm. um, which is, that's a ton of people, right? That's, yeah. That's quite a bit, especially for combat back then. That yeah. Was, it, this is a know, long range, a lot, lot of long range deaths that you never saw it coming and you just yeah. got blown up one day. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's, for some reason, it threw me for, for a loop whenever they were talking about them using like guns and rifles and stuff. And I was trying to remember when those were invented. But, <laughs> um, but then... The estimates for the deaths because of the Thirty Years' War range between eight to twelve million people. Mm. And uh, is that thing, just like displacement and starvation and disease and everything? Starvation, involved? disease. That's that's the thing about the Thirty Years' War that's so interesting. At least to you know probably not live through it, but to like look back and learn about it is because the the war wasn't over who was going to beat each other in battle pretty much it was you go into enemy territory you fight them off then you exhaust all of their resources by like pillaging every village you can find and eating all of their crops and everything until everyone there dies and then your you know military company whatever the size of people as you have is going to die from starvation then you go to another area in the enemy territory yeah so it was just going into enemy territory and draining all of their resources until you know you you need to move on to get more food which is like i don't know that that seems to me like it was a shift in the military thinking at the time like i'm sure it was an pro- evolution more, but it's it's like uh i'm it's probably just the evolution towards always seeing war eventually as zero sum you know a, a zero sum game right you know and there's like the stories of like old roman the old roman ways of of war and battle where even when they're going up against the goths and the other 
you know, quote unquote, barbarian hordes in Germania and uh, what would become France. Uh, it was still like you you beat them in battle till they respect you, and then you kind of uh, draft all of their ha- the remainders of their army yeah, yeah. into your army, and they all become citizens of your of your land. And now we've like doubled our strength and all of that type of thing. Uh, less less of uh, just complete annihilation. Yeah, I mean, that was this was also the creation of like professional soldiers, kind of like the Thirty Years' War. And so people were, you know, either mercenaries or they were people chose to join the military, especially after the war had been dragging on for uh, a decade or more, because it was better to be in the military to take stuff from other people Mm. than be the person who's having stuff taken from you because you're not going to avoid like conflict you know like now there's this um there's this totally pretty much ignored (laughs) but uh symbolic nature of war where they're like well you know the citizens like we're not gonna do anything to them right like that's that's what good liberals think is happening yeah there's the sovereignty the the sovereignty angle right um but back then it was like you were you were going to face uh, a lot of suffering if you didn't join the military and then at the same time like the military back then like their whole families came with them and that's also how they drained resources they like Mm -hmm. had their kids and families and everything like that in tow um but it just it's so funny whenever there's any kind of military history stuff talking about when somebody came up against a new tactic and the tactic was, what if we had the front line of people with muskets get on one knee and then we had another line of muskets <laughs> behind them. D- so you double, have two Double lines. up the firepower here. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing to me. Like the, like the, the I've, I got so confused because they're going back and forth between like the names of the generals or whatever. And I can't keep track who's who. And they're also like hired people for different countries. And then each different country, one of them is fighting for the Catholics and one of them is fighting for the Protestants. So they would Mm. also interchange that. I cannot keep six, six categories in my head at the same time. (laughs) Right. But one of them was just doing the thing where it was all one block of people. And then the other person who had the kneeling idea also broke the soldiers up into like more squares of Mm -hmm. people and moved those independently. And it's just like, I understand. And this is definitely something that they said at the time, like contemporary writers explained that war was no longer something that was, um, I forget the word they used, but something that was like valiant or whatever. Yeah, like, you have this culture change, and this happens yeah. in the, during the Revolutionary War in America, and even in the Civil War to some extent. But like the idea that part of being a good, especially man in society, and if you really wanted to establish yourself as like a uh, honorable citizen, you had to earn this through the doing these heroic acts in war not only that but it was also it was an aristocratic game like you 
rich sons needed to go out there and get some stripes and some medals so that they would be taken seriously later on in life in the battlefield in in the business world you know that was like a you did send your 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 firstborn son out there to the front lines because that was like we needed to show how badass our family was. It wasn't, uh, oh, let's make sure they stay out of the military because that's for the poor people. Right, yeah. It's, it's. Um, I don't know, it's very crazy. And then the end of it too is very interesting. I'm still going through that episode where they're describing like the foundations of states essentially. But to know that because of the war and the, the little ice age, and everything that brought, you know, three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You had, mm-hmm. you know, pestilence, famine. Is disease one of them? Yeah, I guess. Um, and, uh, and of course, plenty of deaths, too. Um, that got the, the peasants, the urban class, and the, I think military was the third one, but more military kind of government official people all on the same side against like the the people in charge to get them to actually like end the war and focus on determining which state is what and Denmark or the Dan yeah Dan- Denmark getting its independence from Spain or something like I didn't <laughs> know that like it's it's very interesting yeah the um I think I mentioned this before, but my in high school, we read a lot of Winston Churchill's history of the English speaking peoples as our history curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the really fascinating parts of those books is the breakdown, like almost battle by battle breakdown of the tactics and strategy used. And he does it for multiple different conflicts, but the ones that he does for like the Revolutionary War and the Civil War are very fascinating. Just how you see the evolution over the over the duration of the war of how like the tactics go, and he uh, Churchill goes hard after Cornwallis in the Revolutionary War for not adapting his tactics early enough and still using a lot of like everybody line up regiment style and you know just take the brunt of all the all the bullets and that's the way that we're going to do this uh when yeah. the americans had uh, had changed quickly after the beginning of the war because they were just going they were getting totally annihilated trying to fight like that yeah yeah i i think you know part of the the american side was like they're like what if we you know hide behind trees <laughs> yeah no that it, and that was like uh in in a lot of the early writings um from officers in the revolutionary war they do talk about like the cowardly act of being sniper sniped by a tree and that's you know basically the the american war effort is no better than the savages we were trying to claim the land from because they don't respect uh, rank and authority and that the battlefield is a place of order. It's kind of, you know, like you're going to a, a cricket match or something. You don't just walk over there and shoot the manager of the other team in the head and say we won. <laughs> we have to like have a proper battle of wits out here on the field to really determine who the winner is going to be. It's cheating if you just shoot the general in the head. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's always a that's a go-to for me in chess. If if I've got my queen lined up against the other person's queen, I'll just I'll take it out. Yeah, 
just like, take 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 the most dangerous thing off the board, even if it means that you're going to take yours is going to be taken out the next move. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, let's see if you can get me in checkmate with four pawns and a knight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's what the game comes down to a lot of the times. Right now, they're trying to um, they have like an incel recruitment month um, on the computers that you can play. It's uh, Women's History Month, and so they only have famous women throughout history. So you can just okay. go through and beat them at chess. I'm just, I'm just going <laughs> to fucking is... own Marie Curie in chess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do, but do you let Anne Frank win? Just because uh, she's not on there. She's taking so many L's. You might <laughs> yeah, as well give her on one. There. Yeah, they have uh, Jane Goodall. Um, they have Malala, and then they have a few other people. Um, <laughs> Last month they had, they did have Luca. Oh, cool. Um, they had different AI, like from pop culture. And then they had Luca, but they made him an AI. Like the way that chess computers work is like they have different skill levels and they'll adapt to a certain skill level but they will not progress beyond that because being okay. a computer it you could would be like, able to add in like 10 games you would it would be able to master everything right and and i mean you can play those kinds of computers but it would be impossible for somebody like me to i wouldn't enjoy it um so they have different skill rankings for them so that like you know they'll do like they'll do a mistake that's super obvious if oh, they're yeah, yeah. a low level one or whatever um, it replicates like playing a person at that skill level fairly well, but the Luca one, they decided to make an actual AI that would learn through all of the games it played. And it started out like last week, it was terrible. It was like the lowest it could start out at. Um, and by this weekend, like it, it was unplayable for me. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how fast it can just figure out. And it's just a stupid thing on like an app. <laughs> well, see, I want, that makes me wonder because Luca's big launch this summer before the season started is a AI version of himself. For what? So it's like a. It started and it's like uh, it started as kind of like a chat bot. Like you could go and talk to this other Luca, and he's like, "Hi, I'm Luca. I'm just figuring out how the world works." And um, it's got like a complete scan computer generated version of him but then there's like cool there's like things that have pop, been popping up around the city that is associated with his luca ai side brand like you can go to this one spot in front of the stadium and it like will look at you scan you and it'll like change your clothes to being like a bunch of luca ai generated clothes and it huh. you know looks like you're wearing them or whatever um but so I wonder if the chess thing is just a uh, individualized to the chess app or if it's just another sort of integration point from this thing that Luca started over the summer. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> and I, I bet you more. He's like the first one I know of in the NBA to do it. But I think a lot of guys are about to start doing stuff like this. Um, be oversaturated well when uh the, when the nba all-star game happened adam silver was debuting some of the new technology for the next season when you know all the regional streaming of game old tv broadcast deals are all over and everything um because they have these 
you know, thousands of cameras all set up in a ring around all the camera to monitor all the player tracking data and stuff. They've had them for years now to monitor player levels and they can, you know, see if a guy's getting too fatigued just from that without having to like him come over to the bench and be like, dang coach, my legs are tired, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but now because they have that, every angle of every game is being shot in real time constantly. So it's like having the, the set from the matrix, like filming every NBA game. And now what they do is you can just have a friend do a scan on your phone where they just do a 360 walk around of you with, with your phone camera. And that will insert, you can then just highlight a player on the court in real time and it will replace that player's body with your body oh. and you will do all of the stuff in the game. <laughs> yeah, that's so weird. <laughs> it looks just like you, every, the clothes you were wearing that day. It doesn't like elongate your body okay. proportions to match like the player you were you were replicating. Now it's all of a sudden this five foot eleven guy running around the fucking <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay i saw like the image of the guy he like scanned him who was just wearing like a polo or whatever but i had no idea what that was for <clears throat> yeah, yeah but that's like and but vice versa if you have uh already like ai avatar of yourself that then you can also enter into lots of other things contract negotiations yeah yeah just have that person <laughs> show up for you <laughs> show up on all the interviews you don't want to do you can be in the bubble of love sponge video yep but yeah it's it's fucking weird like the luca ai chatbot thing i have no idea what his uh, end game is i just know that he's really in always been into into video games and he you know he got real involved with the development of his own character when he was the cover of nba 2k the previous generation to this one last year's generation and so I don't know what that, you know, set off on his own venture, but we'll see. Maybe Luca AI will be the one that becomes Skynet. Who knows? <laughs> he's he's going to be a VTuber. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I think there's not really a, much of a future money-making wise in that kind of stuff. I feel like it's like people think that there's going to be money in it, you know? It's like the the NFTs kind of stuff where they're like, well, eventually people are going to want to buy this, like the digi digital real estate thing, yeah, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, I don't think people are with less and less money in their pocket are going to be willing to buy a Sims house. I do think I think that uh, in uh, three body problem when they're in the second book, when they're on the on natural selection on the big ship and they're seeing like what the, all the advanced technology 200 years in the future is. And mm -hmm. they've, they talk about how technology went from making everything in life more complicated to it got past that hump. And now everything in life became simplified because all the technology was so embedded that you couldn't even tell what the devices were, what anything was. Everything was just like would be on demand whenever you needed and would disappear whenever you didn't need it anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I do feel like there is that kind of a curve thing that's happening. It, definitely not with NFTs, but with, you know, I, I think it is huge gross over exaggeration when everyone's freaking out about the chat GPT and all that stuff because that's not even, that's not general AI 
that's not even like the first baby step of artificial intelligence. They are just uh, chat bots. They're not. Yeah. They're just aggregating. Um, but the uh, I think there is the horizon <laughs> that it's not it's not like that stuff is going to be totally useless. It might be useless from like a traditional capitalist standpoint of, man, we're going to be able, I'm going to be able to make, you know, $300,000 a year now because I have this tool when I was only making $100,000 a year before. I don't think that's the thing that's going to happen. If anything, it'll like hurry up this realization that, wow, we have all these millions of people that basically do clerical work. Um, even they call themselves lawyers even, but they're really just doing clerical work most of the time. Yeah. And, uh, we're going to realize real fast that we don't need any of those people to do any of those jobs. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing that is amazing though, is the current trajectory of all of that is they're going to say like, we don't need any of those people and they just need to retrain for another job. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing is like, eventually if, if we want like a big, uh, systemic sociological change in America, especially if we want to see like, uh, a close to like a labor uprising movement, we want all of those jobs to go away to AI. We want them to go away tomorrow, like as fast as they can. We want those things to be eroded. We want yeah. that flashpoint to happen. And the argument is not, hey, we need to quit giving these jobs to robots because people miss the dignity of work on being on an assembly line somewhere. <laughs> That's not yeah. the argument. The argument should be, look at all this added value we've now created by basically having free labor to do all these things. Uh, why don't you just give us a basic income and everyone can just, you know, be happy? <laughs> yeah. Well, if everybody's happy, then what's going to happen to the struggling artist, you know? Yeah. What's it? I mean, you're going to be out of work because all these image generators are going to just be able to do all your paintings way better than you can. I know. The only true artist left will be House of Panic. Yeah. Well, you, you just have to resort to where your art, instead of being a thing you sell visually for people to look at later, it's all just real-time performance. Like, people come mm -hmm. to see you do the stencils and paint it because they don't want to see a computer just fart it out in a millisecond. Yeah, <clears throat> that's that's definitely... I mean, I I don't know why, but people love looking at those AI images on, like... Instagram and stuff those people and maybe they're juicing their numbers of followers mm -hmm. but they have like hundreds of thousands of people following them on Instagram and it's just the ones where it's like oh I use AI to make fake superheroes that are crazy in this world or whatever yeah I don't get at all the appeal of looking at that kind of stuff it is no, so no one ever wanted to look at all my Wolverine drawings inside my notebook from school <laughs> But it's not, that's the thing. It's not even your Wolverine drawings. <laughs> like you, you fed in some words. Okay. I can, I would actually respect it a little bit if you use the AI to come up with like a concept to be like, okay, yeah, I kind of like this direction. And then you drew it because there's people, all of those AI things, people can create those things. I don't really think that like digital art is on the same scale as traditional mediums, but it is something people can make, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, it drives me nuts that people would actually 
be like, yeah, this is really cool. There's like an artist that I follow, um, that I'm, I'm like nearing like unfollowing him just because he's gotten so into the AI stuff, but he used to draw like these with, I think he did it digitally. Like he would sketch it out and then edit it mostly on the computer, which is like, okay, that's fine. It feels very cheap to me. Like just draw it out by hand, but Mm. whatever. Um, like the thing that I would get annoyed with is for like shading, you know how you can do, it's called stipple. Yeah. So yeah like yeah. where you just, you take the pen and you just like do a Dot. bunch of dots. Um, there's like brushes on Photoshop that simulate that. Oh, so you don't um, have to do each individual dot. You just apply yeah. it to an area. Yeah. Yeah. So then you can just sweep it over like, you know, three times and it's covered the, the, how much, you know, it'd probably take you an hour or two to do that amount of space or whatever. Like, okay, I can understand you want to be more efficient, but it also feels like it cheapens it. But he would do these kinds of things with stippling. And it was like these futuristic kind of alternate reality, like weird creatures with all these, uh, all these, you know, different machines and stuff. The name of the person is gossip goblin. And it was really cool. He would like kind of write out like a story of each one. Um, and now he's just doing it in AI. And it's like, buddy, that 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 actually didn't take you any time to do because you. <laughs> yeah, it probably took the computer like a few hours to spit these images out. But you went to Starbucks and came back, you know. <laughs> no, I had to go back and tweak the prompt a couple times because it wasn't giving me exactly what I wanted. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I can understand. So annoying. I can understand all that stuff from the use of like, I want to be able to maximize my time for creativity. I don't want to be bogged down with the methodology as much. You know, Uh, like if there is a shortcut so that I don't have to be sitting here doing some redundant task that is taking me away from the creative part, um, I would love to use the shortcut. So I can maximize creative time on creative time. But if the shortcut is the, uh, you do the shortcut and you're like, well, that's creativity. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a difference. Like in, uh, in Logic, the recording software, um, they have uh, an AI drummer type of setup where it's, you know, a list of like 20 different drummers from with each of them have a bunch of different genres that they play. And Mm. it's obvious, like they went in and just had different people record like a bunch of different drum parts. And, but they've created it in this, um, interface where it's easily movable whereas like you just drag the intensity meter up they'll like start to play a little harder and you can drag the complexity meter up a little bit and they'll start to do just slightly more complex things than they were doing not like the whole beat changes just like okay i'm gonna add a little ghost note on the snare where there wasn't one before i'm gonna open the hi-hat up a little bit type of thing Mm -hmm. and once you figure out how to use the program it's incredibly powerful and useful for like songwriting because you can get your initial like guitar idea laid out and then you can just tweak a bunch of different drummer presets and mess with the different quote-unquote ai settings of this virtual drummer in order to make it match whatever you played it'll listen to your guitar track and be like okay 
I've heard enough guitar tracks in my life that have been programmed into me. I know that this is the type of feel that will go good with that. I know that mm-hmm. this is where I need to hit the kick drum to match that strumming pattern. And that's incredibly useful because it makes writing go fast. You can just get the idea out, put that on there, hear what kind of it would sound like as a song and then make some adjustments and then I can send it to the guys in the band and be like okay this is the idea and so the guy who plays drums is like okay now I know exactly what you're hearing in your head what the drum should sound like and he might not play it exactly like that but we have that there to it's a it's a way easier communication starting point than for me to just play out of context a guitar riff and me to be like, so you hear in my head what the drums sound like in my head? Do you hear that? And you're like, yeah. No, I can't hear the, the sounds inside your head. <laughs> yeah, for that kind of stuff. But then, you know, then you take it to the point where like, okay, now your drummer is like being doing the creative part. Like the AI art stuff doesn't go beyond like okay, all these images look really cool. Go do a photo shoot then based off of, like make the actual Yeah, yeah, let that be your inspiration, in yeah. Yeah, which which I still, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's definitely not the same as like, I have an idea, I'm going to fully flush it out from my head, draw it onto paper and then make the stuff. It's certainly not the same, but I can see what you're saying, like how it's a shortcut for like, that creative process but if you just stop at the computer making it part like you know like the my soundcloud or uh yeah my soundcloud song that i sent to you like i don't rem- i don't th- i'm pretty sure all of those things were like preset kind of uh loops that you, know. you just dropped in yeah the loops. timeline yeah and it feels like the same thing to me if you're like yeah like- you kind of adjusted it but it's not at all creating a song yeah it's kind of like being a collage artist like you cutting out a lot of cool stuff from magazines and you put together an art piece a collage like that that's that's the same thing as like if you're a loop person that just drops a lot of pre-recorded loops and you're creating something out of that you're taking like this four measure thing and adding it onto this two measure thing and this one beat little thing and you're gonna you're you're coming up with that yeah. Um, so you are doing something. It's not totally nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the, you know what the problem is with AI art stuff. And I know that it's going to be accepted and I'm pretty sure I've said this within the last few months, but it's like the exact same thing as like the factory, um, art artists and mm-hmm. stuff like yeah, Andy yeah, yeah. Warhol, who tells a team of 20 people, I want to have Elvis, uh, with like some, like in three different colors next to each other and they go out and they schedule it and they do the photo shoot and they do the printing and you know, the different color versions. And then Andy Warhol just looks at it and goes, yes, yes, no, no, yes. On those, like that's to me, Andy Warhol is not the artist (laughs) anymore. Like that doesn't count. (laughs) You know, you, you at some point, you know, you just transcend, transcend art and become like a cultural icon. So you don't even have to do the art anymore because you are the culture. Such an interesting person, that guy. (laughs) I've tried watching the Netflix show, The Andy Diaries. Oh, yeah, I haven't haven't watched it. Do you know his bit, though? Yeah. That he would just call a reporter and talk to them for like four hours a day, every day. 
That's insane. <laughs> and and have a party at his loft every night and invite all those same people to rehash the same conversations again. <laughs> God. What a boring But life. hey, no, you know, there was no internet. I guess, yeah. <clears throat> New York in the 80s? 90s? Uh, no, late no, 70s and early 80s, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess cocaine helps at that point. Yeah, and the cocaine was pure back then. You know, right. Wasn't all laced up with a bunch of fentanyl. Yeah. Yeah. Not laced up with a bunch of fentanyl. <coughs> well. Okay. Now, James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> Speaking of technological advancements. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we talked, you know, last July when uh, the whole thing launched. You're like, man. You know, eventually we're going to get down to some... They're probably just going to do some, like, baseline measurement type of things here in the first six months. It's going to be some, like, observations, but they kind of know what they're going to get out of them because it's all about calibrating the instrument, getting all the different mirrors and everything, everything working right, making sure there's nothing going wrong, all the communication systems are good. Um, And so we're probably not going to get, like, any hard like major discovery science, maybe for not like a couple of years, you know, that's what, that was, that was our takeaway last July. And, uh, well, it didn't take that long. It really, <laughs> it didn't take that long at all. Yeah. The, it's pretty crazy. And like, you know, they, some of it, they're still saying like, this is preliminary data, but considering that, you know, they're like, we got these, these different images, and even if half of them turn out to not be exactly what we think they are, that means half of them are things we never thought could even exist, <laughs> <laughs> which is wild that that's like, and it's from the original stuff, right? The original kind of images. Yeah. 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 So um, when they when when it was launched they did the initial calibration stuff they looked at a couple spots on exoplanets to test the atmospheric spectroscopy um stuff they had on there um and then we were going to wait for a bunch of a big data dump from those first few months of observations because it takes a while for all that stuff to get downloaded back to earth and then it's just a bunch of ones and zeros until that's get collated by a lot of different supercomputers to really search through the data and then you're relying on teams from universities all over the planet to then check that and then cross-reference with each other that they're all seeing the same stuff um before you know we even know so uh no, no actual even papers were published until December um, about some of these things. And even in July, like before Webb was fully uh, ready to go, um, there had been, a, from a few smaller infrared telescopes that we have, information on a very distant galaxy that was possibly redshifted 13Z, which just means that it's was at about 13.5 billion years in the past. So you're only talking 350 million years from the Big Bang. Um, and, and the, the Zs, like Z means that the wave, the light wavelength has doubled with yeah, each Z. For so, every factor. So one is double, yeah. two is triple, 
<laughs> and etc. Or it's down. quadruple. Yeah, I yeah, think. yeah. Two is yeah. One is double. Two is quadruple. Three would be uh, eight tuple. <laughs> yeah, the, the next <laughs> octuple. Yeah, something <laughs> Oct- octified. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, that you know, and that was even looked at kind of like by Hubble, but there was no way to really tell at that point because we didn't have a finely tuned powerful enough instrument to confirm if that was actually a galaxy that was being seen an early galaxy at that far uh, at the beginning of the universe waiting for james webb to come online um so now that that telescope is online not only did they confirm that distant galaxy but there's six others and all of them sit in this pocket from before the earliest observations of the universe that we had before. So we're seeing stuff that's younger than the stuff that we thought was the youngest stuff that we could see, which was the purpose of James Webb's powerful infrared instruments was to be able to see this light from the earliest parts of the universe. And it hasn't even done the real deep dive yet to as far it can go. This is just the first kind of deep look. Just Let's just take a quick peek. See what's see what's deep out there in this in this little spot of the universe where there's nothing else around. It's just black. Let's just peer down and see how far we can look back. <clears throat> so this is where you get to like the question is how big are these things? And these galaxies are like ten to the eleven solar mass galaxies, which is huge. You, on the order of like 10 times the order of magnitude larger than assumed that galaxies could be at that young stage in the earth in in the universe way more stars way more star formation than anyone thought could have happened in that short amount of time between the big bang and when this observation is made um and we did talk in the black hole episode about there had been some detection of hugely massive objects that were just beyond the reach of visible light um, before James Webb came out. And there's there was a big question in the black hole physicist community of like, how could something, how could black holes, supermassive black holes already exist at that point in time in the universe? And so then there's been like this open-ended conjecture in the black hole world of, well, maybe black holes don't start tiny. Maybe some are born big. You know, it takes a, a big collapse of gas, a big collapse of star, multiple stars at the same time because they're all young, and so they all go boom very fast. They burn up all their fuel, and so you give birth to a big, massive black hole. It starts massive, so it doesn't even have to eat that much to become supermassive. Um, and as they, get, as they evaluate the data... For these six um, galaxies that are beyond 13Z redshift, some of them may end up not being galaxies. They might end up being supermassive black holes that have large uh, accretion disks or big amounts of dust clouds around them. But it still means that that thing, as a supermassive black hole, has the mass of 10 to the 11 solar masses. It's not like it's, oh, it's just a black hole, so there were no stars. No, no, it still has all of that mass. So you still have this, if it's if it's a galaxy or if it's a black hole, you still have the wonder of where the heck did all the mass come from in such a short amount of time. Yeah, the, the things too, because I have to work through all this like every time we do these kinds of things because it doesn't stick in my head very well. But 
the the current theory on how like galaxies form is that in the beginning there was the big bang right and then you had the so much hydrogen everywhere that light couldn't even travel the opaque the opaque universe at the very beginning yeah. you couldn't see through anything and all this hydrogen eventually due to uh dark matter right like that can only interact via gravity dark matter was starting to pool in certain areas and then that pooled in with gravitational force hydrogen and everything that then formed stars that then kind of form or from the dust formed dust then formed stars and then formed those coming together and forming galaxies maybe they exploded and then came back together mm-hmm. with more atoms and everything but everything at this stage too is pretty much just hydrogen there might be a right, little exactly. bit of helium and like a, like a dash of lithium or something like that but there has not been a lot of fusion process there's no heavy metals there's no rocks there's no <laughs> carbon there's no nothing it's just yeah. it's just hydrogen pretty much and but that's how they like get to the you know estimates of how there how much solar mass there is mm. and uh, understanding the light because they know how much hydrogen is at least supposed to have been in the universe at that point. And right. Or, or and, that the majority of anything was hydrogen. Maybe we yeah. don't know the volume of the whole space, but we know that the ratios of what the stuff was in that volume. And then they know that because there's mostly hydrogen they know when photons interact with it, what level of absorption there is, and then release of light from hydrogen. And because they can, they know exactly what those wavelengths of light coming from hydrogen are, then they can know what the, uh, like, they, they know that that's what exists there. They can estimate based off of how the intensity or whatever of, wavelength light that they get from that that they know how big it is and how far away it is and i don't know if we have to recover like the red shifting but yeah essentially just we could talk about redshift in relation to the lyman break and the um and how and the balmer break and how that works um the basically we're t- we're talking about ionization of hydrogen atoms um mm-hmm. so at certain frequencies um, the energy is so high that it will ionize certain electrons off of hydrogen and just shoot them right off. Or they won't go to the next level, the next valence shell. They won't go to the next one. They'll actually just get shot off and become ionized particles. Um, the other, so you can see exactly where those things are when you do a spectrograph. And the the Balmer series is what I learned the one of the few things I still remember from like high school um, uh, chemistry where the guy came in a van to our little private school and would have a bunch of tubs and we do like a little chemistry experiment every time but he also believed like uh, that the earth was 6,000 years old and stuff too. So it was, <laughs> I, 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 looking back, knowing a lot of the stuff I know now, I don't know how much I'm supposed to take from that class that was like good or bad. <laughs> I, you know, 
<clears throat> but this is one of the things that I think was correct because I've seen that the equations are still the same equations that I learned in ninth grade. <laughs> <laughs> but um, essentially, when you diffract the light through hydrogen, when you uh, you run electric charge through hydrogen, you can excite those particles, and as if it will glow. And if you then use a diffraction lens or a prism um, to spread out the spectrum of those different lights that are glowing, emitting from the hydrogen, you will see very defined lines on these certain color bands. And so that's hydrogen signature. It'll have a line in the like 600 range in the red and it'll have nothing in like green or yellow and then it'll have a line at like cyan and then it'll have a deep line at like purple um almost at the very edge of the ultraviolet spectrum to where you can't see it anymore it's like right yeah. there at the at the very end uh, so that's the spectral signature for hydrogen now that is a mathematical ratio between where those lines show up and that's what the Balmer series was the creation of just figuring out what is the ratio between the distance between where the red line shows up and where the cyan line shows up and where the violet line shows up. And what that is, is it's telling you the amount of energy it takes for the photon to jump the next level and show red light versus cyan versus violet. So that's what a Balmer series is. All Balmer series is, is the equation that tells you the ratio that gives you the measurement of the distance between those lines on the rainbow whenever you diffract the light. So you know exactly what the signature is for hydrogen. It's like its thumbprint. It's its DNA signature. Um, yeah. Now, we know that the early universe was mostly hydrogen. And most of those stars that make up those early galaxies were basically just hydrogen hydrogen factories um and so the most of the stuff that the photons that are emitted from those from 13.5 billion years ago that have been traveling to us through time um are coming from that hydrogen signature so when you have a space telescope you can look at that deep light as it's coming towards you and you can apply different filters on on your telescope in the infrared spectrum to filter out the different colors of light to see the the most red light so you can see the furthest back. So the general rule here is that the redder the light is, the further away, the younger the light is in the universe. Now the reason you can tell that is because of this Balmer series of the thumbprint of hydrogen. And what's happening is at the ultraviolet range of the spectrum, hydrogen has a signature, like where we can't see it. We know what that frequency is. We know exactly where it sits because it's part of its thumbprint. As it travels through space over time, it that photon that is that emits in the ultraviolet spectrum as it's coming towards us has to go through all of these galactic clouds of dust and protoplanet material and other gases and everything as it gets to us. So as it's moving, that light is being absorbed by all the other hydrogen and all the other things inside of the universe. And as it's being absorbed, the colors 
that are in the back end, the ultraviolet spectrum to the visible light spectrum are being absorbed. So you're losing all of the purple light, you're losing all the blue, you're losing all the green, you're losing all the yellow, but the red keeps coming through. This is what's known as the Lyman break, where that that cliff is, where you only see red and you don't see any of the other colors, you know that that red light must be very old. Because if I was seeing a hydrogen signature that showed me not just red, but it showed me all the other colors down the spectrum, we know that that's closer because it hasn't been filtered out by all the dust and all the clouds and everything in between us in that time. Um, so if it hasn't been filtered out and we're only seeing the red, we know that's really ancient, ancient light. Now, the to know how far away it is, this is the really interesting part. To get to that 13Z, that means that the light that we're seeing was the unvisible purple ultraviolet light of the hydrogen signature that has been moving through time for 13 and a half billion years. And in that time, it has shifted from being the ultraviolet, very compact wavelength to being in the infrared band now because it's so stretched out. Yeah. That's and how the, you measure the distance. It, it sounds like counterintuitive, especially whenever you're like, well, it's super far away, so we know that it's really young. But the that just exists because the amount of time it takes the light to travel to us uh, from that distance away, we know that it takes 13.5 billion years uh, for light to travel to us. Yeah. So then we can convert it to the uh, distance measurement, which is light years. So then it's 13.5 billion light years away. So then we know that it's that happened 13.5 billion years ago. Yeah. We're um, seeing the photon that started its journey 13 and a half billion years ago. And the light is the light of what it looked like back then, but we just have right. to run. We just have to squish it back together to see what it, what it used to look like. Yeah. And because the universe is constantly expanding, the space at which the photons are traveling through is expanding and stretching it out like a slinky, uh, which is, you know, one of those things that really hurts your head. Cause you're like, if <laughs> like, if you're, it, it feels like in your head, you're like, okay, if I'm trying to walk on like one of those uh, like the moving sidewalk things at an airport or whatever, like that's kind of stretching out the sidewalk I'm mm -hmm. walking on. Um, but as soon as I step on it, then I'm at that point. But because light waves are continually moving, they're continually stepping on a new moving sidewalk, which then stretches out the wavelength. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, mind boggling, but that's just how it is. And the thing that's, that has weirded me out with it is, uh, you know, this, this Z 13 red shifted galaxy that they're thinking might exist. Um, or the thing that they're thinking might exist. That's that age is around 400 million years after <laughs> the universe supposedly yeah. <laughs> came into being. And, that still falls within the time that they think it could have been opaque. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where the edge <laughs> for, for the first star formation comes before you start to get things to clear out. Yeah, it is. Uh, so 
that's the thing that I I want to know what are their theories for after they discover it because I was reading like I was like okay so is there the possibility for multiple big bangs and you know not like in a cyclical format in my head where it's like always you, you know like the big crunch kind of mm-hmm. uh concept that's not doesn't seem to really yeah it's always rebounding on itself right right so it comes back to the exact same point and then expands there's like a nobel prize winner that he won a nobel prize in 2020 in physics for um expanding on einstein's theory of relativity and saying that uh when something has sufficient mass it then collapses into a singularity which i don't think is like necessarily proven so it's kind of weird that they gave him a nobel prize for it in my head but um (laughs) Right, because isn't that like a singularity is just like a theory? It's not. Yeah, well, I a black hole is kind of a singularity, but that's what Hawking radiation and all that stuff was about. Was trying to show that it's not a singularity. It's a the you don't you're not getting something for nothing, or some things don't evaporate to nothing. There, the information exists and it does radiate out. And the the this Nobel Prize winner. Uh, so it's confusing the way the articles are written, but of course you're not going to expect the Guardian to have this nuance. It, the Nobel Prize winner did not win the Nobel Prize for saying there were multiple Big Bangs. The Nobel Prize winner for winning the thing saying that significant mass creates a singularity also thinks that there could have been multiple Big Bangs. Um, and the theory sort of like makes some sense to me that he's saying and i'm not sure if you're like familiar with it but he's saying that the um he's found like warm spots in in the i think the cosmic microwave background where he thinks that through hawking radiation i believe that black holes would have evaporated but that the dark matter or something would have still been around there that then once every uh bit of matter in the universe decays that could spark another big bang Mm -hmm. at that point or something um so my question is (laughs) what are our is our universe just running into another universe that then had yeah you know galaxies exist in it that's kind of like something that's kind of the string one of the string theory permutations that brian green's talked about like the if String theory does have the implication of the multiverse, but what if it's like a bunch of bubble? Every universe is a bubble. Yeah. And sometimes those bubbles bounce off each other and sometimes they merge with each other. And so is our Big Bang where the two bubbles bumped up against each other? And is there evidence for that by looking through the cosmic microwave background to see if like oh maybe there's a scar we can find the scar where the the collision happened and maybe some of the information from the two universes exchanged or something like that happened um and which would be required for string theory with everything being connected quantumly and all of that type of thing um so i don't know that's that's kind of the exciting thing about this and kind of the reason uh, Webb was put in the sky was we had reached the limits of all what we could input into simulators to say what 
how the universe formed based upon all of the known data that existed. And you got lots of models that agreed with each other that this is based upon the information that we have when we run the simulation for the model, this is probably how it happened. And none of them really create an existence of uh, 10 to the 11 solar masses galaxies at you know, 350 million years after the, <laughs> after the big bang. So that means yeah. there's something either there might, it might just be a slight variable error that we just had. There's something that hasn't been discovered from that time that will fit it all into place and it'll make it work with the way we understand physics. Or it might be some quantum level thing where this is the edge of where, how quantum, um, effects start to generate um, more classical physical phenomena. Maybe the ionization, uh, maybe the energies that are submitted at this time that are actually causing the electrons to jump around in these different ways, maybe that is some new physics that needs to be understood. Maybe there is somehow more energy released than we thought was capable of being released, which made us underestimate the amount of stars that could have been generated in such a short time. Um, and that was like the real like holy grail of what everyone's trying to do with the particle accelerators here on Earth and everything is find that little piece of new physics that finally makes all makes these things make sense and work together. And maybe that this is like a new avenue of looking at it that'll help help uh round that curve yeah it's the that's the frustrating thing with looking at this kind of stuff is you're like okay well then what is it and, and everyone <laughs> looking at it is like absolutely no idea <laughs> this, this 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 it's the problem with that everyone had with dr anthony fauci you know it's like just tell me the settled science just give me the just give me the final answer that's going to stop this fucking pandemic i i don't want to hear we got a good feeling about this i don't want to hear well the 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 testing has been showing promising results i don't hear any of that just give me the final answer god damn it <laughs> i don't know if that's the problem everybody had with him i think uh some of us thought that he acted a little too slowly on some <laughs> guidelines that would have totally made sense, but the economy, the economy, we have to worry about the economy. Yeah. that And, but this is the thing that just the bigger science perspective of the reason I love astrophysics is for these types of conversations where it is the constant renewal of the idea of the scientific process that, it's not settled science. It's, that's kind of a misnomer of a term. Science is this evolutionary process of discovery. Um, and at no point is it time to be like, well, we figured it all out. Let's just not try anymore. <laughs> we got we got yeah. the answer. We've, 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 we've been studying this for the last 40 years and pretty much all coming up with the same answer. So time to stop looking. <laughs> it does. Whenever we do these topics, it does make me think like, man could I just go get a job doing this too? Like it sounds, Dude, I don't know. I, like when we did the, uh, when we did the, the black hole, uh, huge telescope array all around the world, uh, episode a few months ago, like they have, uh, they will conscript you if you would like and let you run a, a computer program that's part of the, that will add to the network of 
global computers that are able to process all the information and you can do just you just have to do a couple little keystrokes a day and it'll keep like collating the information and then send what it your little processor was able to do to the to the mother mother computer to because it did its little bit you did your little bit of work how much do they pay i don't know probably nothing (laughs) that's 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 the the other thing is uh, all the when you see, when you watch any of the any videos about this or you go and you know you're looking up stuff of the people who are the authors of these papers they're 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 not you know celebrities they're not, <laughs> they they didn't show up you know getting after like some huge makeover to go give an interview somewhere they're they're all disheveled wearing the same you know like Walmart clothes they've had for 15 years i, I don't think anybody's doing real <laughs> becoming super famous or wealthy off of any of this stuff i don't need wealthy i just need a <laughs> basic subsistence of living um yeah it's it's uh i don't know because you know i i just hear jake kemp in the back of my head <laughs> every time <laughs> and it's uh uh, you know, no fault of his because he was what 22 when he said that. So, yeah. um, but just it's back when he was a shock uh, jock, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, understanding that there's there's definitely things that uh occur on earth that yeah should be fixed, but also it is kind of cool that there are people who are just like, yeah, we just want to know how uh the universe works, like it's not necessarily to have an aim like there's no end goal as far as and i think that's probably that's the you know i need to give hugs and smiles to the the boss in my head that i'm thinking there needs to be some form of product produced at the end of all of this uh but yeah how am i going to monetize this eric yeah exactly like there's no there's no monetization of all the all these red shifted galaxies little fuzzy red dots that web's gonna give us images don't even think that's hasn't occurred (laughs) uh but yeah i mean it's kind of it's kind of cool like especially with the jwst being able to discover if there's life that exists in other places like yeah okay then that could eventually if humans decide that they're uh you know not going to kill each other over the color of their skin and uh whatever religion they subscribe to which is we're not on a positive trajectory for that one (laughs) but if we eventually get past that phase then yeah, I guess humans could try to go out to other places or whatever, but it's that's so far in the future that I don't think that's necessarily the thinking of people. Right oh now, yeah, you know? I I don't even the the kid in me who thought about like ooh look at think of all these like space station habitats and I would draw up you know uh, like big circular diagrams of artificial gravity stations for space and all this that that. That kid doesn't exist anymore. Like I really don't think that. I think I think it's a really foolhardy idea to uh, explore space with human beings, <laughs> and yeah. it's a, it's a giant waste of resources. Like we could do a lot of stuff way faster if we weren't worried about putting human beings inside that that capsule. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like you could not explore, but you could you could discover things and then send humans, I suppose. But uh, 
I don't necessarily think that's something that's needed. Like I, you know, the, the very, uh, gross right wing theory of like overpopulation or whatever is not necessarily. Well, we might need to colonize Europa, you know, when we've, when we've run out of places to colonize here, where are we going to colonize next? Where are we going to send missionaries to next? That's that's definitely the that's like the Kurzgesagt theory for sure that I never subscribe to. It's like, well, you know, the human race will continue on for blah blah blah. It's like I honestly do not care uh, after the next. We'll be generous and say sixty years. Uh, well, we know, know we know the Mormons are going to do it, so don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, of course I care. I do care that people are going to suffer from climate change and stuff, but. Uh, yeah, I guess. Does that make me genocidal that like after 100 years, I don't necessarily care what's going on with the human race? Yeah. When there's even more people that you, will you, exist. You just in? aren't, you're just not very interested in multi-generational projects. You just want to see the stuff that happens in your lifetime. I get you. I would <laughs> care about it if it was things, if we had basic. And then uh, you're sitting here saying how you wish all those people in 1915 cared more about what your standard of life was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, they should have had the foresight, but instead they were too busy boiling their water. <laughs> too busy digging trenches. Yeah. Um, going, look, it makes steam. <laughs> well, I mean, that is like some of the interesting aspect of this too, is sort of the last point for me, but it's about a decade ago when using Hubble, we saw a galaxy that was redshifted uh, 6Z. And that was a record at the time. <laughs> we were like, holy crap, can you believe this? <laughs> the galaxy this young and far away? <laughs> yeah, it's... <sighs> I mean, it's it's pretty impressive to know how fast the uh, technological jump is for humans. <laughs> yeah, and that... It, the the amount of time it takes to get from like geocentrism to like a working model of the solar system to even just understanding that oh wait a second all those dots in the sky are not fixed they're moving too and we're moving yeah. in relation to them like you're talking thousands of years to get to that spot and then even then like you're not launching anything into space <laughs> until really that was really useful until like 60 years ago. Yeah. So, and, but in, it's basically just our lifetime where we've had a greater knowledge of the universe beyond our solar system. That's had any kind of solidified beyond just a guess, total guess out of their ass. <laughs> well, they should have known better. Is the <laughs> yeah. So as always, trust but verify. But you know, now we can verify with some really cool instruments, <laughs> and so the verification yeah. process happens a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I'm looking forward to learning about these things. Um, I know that it's only been a few months, but you know, with the every second that we click or we what is the clock ticks uh closer to uh the doomsday 
the doomsday clock clicks to click. Yeah, are we, whatever. What are we at? Twelve fifty nine and Good thirty Christ. seconds or something. Yeah, yeah. Put me on that board. Yeah, that's what I'll you need everybody. to be the you need to be the doomsday clock guy, and be yeah. the one who's like, I'm switching this to a digital interface. I'm tired of looking at this old <laughs> analog clock. No one understands what this means. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Gen Z knows how to read a clock. No, That's for another they day. certainly don't. Do you know how to read an analog clock? Yeah, of course. Okay, okay. I, was just, <laughs> I mean, you you seem like maybe you're the, you know, 90, kid born in 1990 might be the threshold of like the last no, person to learn how to use an analog clock. I think not knowing an analog clock is you're getting closer to like 98, 99. Okay. Yeah. My, my by, by the time everybody by the time everybody looked at their computer all day long and there was always in the bottom corner a clock there. But you remember how yeah. the old school like Windows, you could make it an analog clock. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean that was something that I did often because <laughs> it was just a different setting. <laughs> I didn't want to look like I was I was basic, you know. Right. Yeah. Basic, I mean, I, basic you know, Windows bitch. I I had to change my my you know toolbar from that like gray scale. To, I wanted mine to be like mint green. Yeah. Exactly. I have. Uh, I had a memory of from my computer class when we learned HTML, and we had to make our own websites, and it was just. Of course, every website except for probably one was god awful. Mm-hmm. Um. But I remember I made, there was some, you know, there was, there was like those, those sites you could look up and it would tell you all of the different HTML codes to put in to have this effect on your yeah, website yeah, or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I did the one where I turned the cursor where it was a normal cursor, but then to the bottom right, it had an analog clock on it mm-hmm. that would kind of, the numbers and everything would like slowly trail behind the the cursor um what an absolutely dumb thing to code into a, a computer but man i'm sure your geocities website looked really cool yeah i don't even know what geocities is that's the breaking point i had a <laughs> i had a myspace and okay. uh, the myspace where my mom catfished me and uh, but before that <laughs> Yeah, I was in AOL chat rooms. Yeah, our first band website was a GeoCity site, so that lets you know how old I am. And you had to pay for it, right? Wasn't that a paid for yeah, site? Yeah, 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 yeah. Domain name? I don't even think we had a like proper domain name. It was like geocities.com slash the, the name of our bassist because it was like his login slash like a couple <laughs> numbers. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, good job, Eric. Thanks for teaching me about the Lyman break. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Until next week. Bye.